0: give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's time for the, the gunny. It's time. It's time. The quarter deck. Lights, lights, lights. Get online right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. The quarter deck. It's time for the gunny. Hello, my bunch of knuckle dragging, beer drinking, hard charging devil dogs. You're listening to the quarter deck. I am your host, Miguel. The Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I, do solemnly, swear, I do solemnly swear. Yes, that I will support and yes, defend the Constitution yes, of the United States, yes, the United States yes, against all yes, yes, enemies, foreign and domestic. Yes, Today on the Quarterdeck, deck, we're going to continue reading our story. Regarding the 1st Marine Division, no better friend, no worst enemy. When we left off last week, we were talking about how the 1st Marine Division had prepared and gotten ready to actually deploy into Kuwait to head to the mission that they were going to be having to do once they received the orders to actually get out there and do the mission. The commanding officer knew that it was going to be difficult once they got out there to allow the Marines to get familiarized with the kind of terrain and everything else that was out there. So we're going to go ahead and continue from where we left off last week, where they're talking about the terrain and how everything was actually going to come together. This difficult terrain posted a significant challenge to off-road maneuver and served to canalize the division's attack to the North. The identification of alternative cross-country mobility corridors became a major intelligence challenge. So you can only imagine that how difficult that would have been. Little was known about the trafficability over the vast swaths of former marshland and even less about the load-bearing capacities of the roads and bridges through the terrain. In many serious defensive efforts, the Iraqis would certainly take maximum advantage of this terrain, destroying bridges, mining culverts, and using induction warfare to delay the division's advance. During planning, this fight was often characterized as the War of the Bridges and nearly every stage of the division's plan was tied to a water obstacle in some way. The most pronounced feature in southern Iraq was the Jabal Sanam, also known as Safwan Hill or Hill 451, for its map designation. The nominating heights of this hill only 3 kilometers north of the Kuwaiti border provided near-continuous lines of sight well into the northern Kuwait. It was known to hide several Iraqi observation posts and a signals intelligence gathering facility. This particular terrain feature was also to dominate a great deal of the division's staff Attention later. When faced with almost impossible task of pre-staging large-scale ground forces in Kuwait without giving clear signals of the division's tactical intent to the enemy. To orient the division to this new topography, the commanding general directed at the G2 to prepare a southern Iraqi orientation map. This map created by the three Lance Corporals, Robert Lupi, Aaron Len, Andrew Sippy gave a common baseline to every member of the division, each of whom would memorize the route name, city names, maneuver, corridors, and water features of southern Iraq. The division shared copies of this product out of supporting units, higher headquarters, and even the commandant of the Marine Corps. The place names, despite on the product, would soon have special meanings to the division, as they would represent the battles fought and won by the blood and sweat of the Marines in combat and would be the focus of the enemy's efforts of thousands of individuals. The familiarity of the division's Marines with the places of this map would ensure these important places would have strong resonance during the execution of the battle plan. The division focused on the vulnerabilities of the large Iraqi forces in order to ensure its rapid destruction. There were both physical and psychological weaknesses that could be exploited and striking them became an important element of the division's plan. It was clear that although large in size, the Iraqi armed forces were poorly trained and equipped. Inadequate logistics and poor equipment readiness rates severely limited the offensive maneuver capability of even the best Iraqi units. This motivation and loyalty of the regular army, or the RA, units were depended heavily on orders from the centralized higher headquarters, a system that would quickly break down during a fast-paced maneuver conflict. The Iraqi regime had a reputation for punishing military commanders who took initiative without consultation. The regime viewed effectively commanders as a threat and often transferred, punished, or even executed them. This heavy-handed treatment of the commanders served to hamstring the maneuver capability of the Iraqi forces almost as much as physical equipment limitations. Although limited in maneuver, the Iraqis had a robust indirect fires capability, which included a massive number of artillery systems and multiple rocket launchers. If forward deployed, many of these systems could range into Northern Kuwait, including the assembly areas of the division, which soon occupied the fires capability of the enemy had its own weaknesses however including an inability to acquire targets rapidly adjust fires or logistically resupply if deployed out of garrison even with these weaknesses the division was carefully not to lose respect for the lethality of the Iraqi weapon systems. If the Iraqis used the terrain carefully, they could mount an effective positional defense and draw division forces into pre-planned fire stacks and ambushes. The Iraqis could cause significant casualties and mount an effective operational delay by defending this series of these well-planned tactical positions. Strategically, the Iraqis could then use the delay to continue efforts through diplomacy employ wmd or weapons of mass destruction or revert to a terrorist campaign the combination of untrafficable terrain and mass indirect fires might allow even a second-rate iraqi army to have a strategic impact the one MEF operational planning team or opt then under lieutenant general michael haggie's guidance opted to bypass the positional defense of enemy units in the south three and four corps and avoid urban areas to the degree possible the MEF would choose to fight terrain rather than to play the strength of the Iraqis. The division viewed this plan as an on-target and a shared appreciation developed among the MEF's major subordinate commands. With this appreciation, the division concentrated on the scheme of maneuver and forced the enemy to reposition his artillery, and did not allow him to adequate time to prepare artillery ambushes and fire sacks. The Division G2's well-presented factual display of the enemy's situation revealed the enemy's vulnerabilities and the division would exploit them, and the enemy's strengths the division would avoid. At the 2002 Division Officers Ball, held annually to celebrate the Corps' birthday that year in Prim Nevada, General Anthony Zini was the guest of honor. In a discussion of the Iraq situation, he jokingly told the assembled commanders that he he would disown them if they didn't handily destroy the enemy's army. These officers understood the Iraqi adversary so well that they only smiled grimly back at the beloved leader. Victory was never in doubt. Should the president call for the 1st Marine Division, only the challenge of minimizing marine casualties and the death of innocent Iraqi citizens gnawed at these men. The commanding general's guidance laid the groundwork for the preparations of the division. Everything we do is to be focused on the destruction of the Iraqi army. Everything. Anything that does not point us to that objective needs to be eliminated. This focus meant some immediate changes in the division's peacetime posture. The division recognized that a force on fighting the Iraqis would leave some peacetime administrators by the wayside, like a turning ship. The division's momentum shifted from its peacetime direction to a war footing. One of the first and most applauded actions was the suspension of the extraneous inspections, routine reports, and conferences. Focus meant a renewed emphasis on physical training as well. Every Marine and sailor attached to the division was ordered to conduct a minimum of 12 miles of personal physical training weekly and to participate in weekly NBC training. This main effort, however, was directed to the minds and the spirits of the Marines. The CG's intent was not to imagine the Marines of the division through every step of the process. The embarkation, planning, deployment, and the five days of combat would be second nature to the members of the division because they would have already walked the ground in their minds. For many of the Marines, this would be their first combat experience. The CG wanted these Marines confident, comfortable, and aggressive in the face of the enemy. The structure of the Iraqi army began with the construction of the fierce and confident band of warriors In the 1st Marine Division. This construction was based on a strong foundation of three factors the innate strength of the individuals drawn to serve in the Marine Corps, the Corps' strong traditional and advanced training methods, and the practical teams in previous divisions' commanders, Major General James Conway, and turned over to the new CG. Building teams out of these hardened individuals, warriors, was its next order of business. The C.G. advised his commanders, look around you, these are the men you will take to war. He cautioned them to look carefully at their staffs and ensure the team they had assembled was the team they wanted to take to the fight. The C.G.'s intent was to build a fraternity of warriors, that would break down any unnecessary formality between the commanders and the staffs and between officers and enlisted men of the division. Rank was respected, but all Marines were accorded the mutual respect due to professional arms about to enter in harm's way. A warrior took hold with each member of the division valued for a contribution of his talents rather than the rank of his caller. The CG had already inherited and assembled a strong team of officers in the Blue Diamond Staff. Brigadier General Select, John Kelly, the Assistant Division Commander, was no stranger to division-level operations. Coming from his latest assignment as a G3 of 2nd Marine Division, the division Sergeant Major Juan Duff was a rock of stability and a key of enlisted advisor. The staff principals were also all high-caliber individuals in their respective fields, but many of them were newly joined to the staff. The no-nonsense Chief of Staff, Colonel Ben Saylor, until recently the commander of eleventh Marines, went to work breaking off down staff firearms and developed the fraternity that would lead to success on the battlefield. The G three Colonel John Tulin had been the S three of the seventh Marines when the commanding general had been his commander, and he also been a light armor reconnaissance or LAR battalion commander. Colonel Jim Hawcroft, the G-2, had years of experience as a military attachee and little patience for intelligence bureaucratics. His experience in the last Gulf War left him with a personality-held objective of focusing intelligence down the lowest tactical level. Lieutenant Colonel John Rodmanda gave the team a strong G-4 with a broad-based expertise in logistics as practice in the type of deep striking operations the division planned to execute. His recent Task Force 58 experience in Afghanistan were served the division well. Colonel Nick Petronizio, one of the scions of the communications community and recently the commander of the division's headquarters battalion, led the G6. Lieutenant Colonel Kathy Pulaski arrived fresh from her previous assignment as the 3rd Marine Division G1 and picked up 1st Marine Division's operation without missing a beat. The dashing Colonel Jim Lukeman, the G7, and Division Inspector, until recently the commander of the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, provided an experienced hand and a trusted agent for the commanding general for a host of special missions, including the rapid fielding of new equipment and streamlined inspections process focused on embarkation of NBC readiness. Colonel. Robert Knapp was the division's headquarters battalion commander, entrusted with the deployed readiness of the division headquarters and the smooth operation of the division commanding post. He headed a strong team of military police, communicators, truck drivers, logisticians, and even musicians that would be the backbone of the successful division's operation. Not satisfied with the cumbersome field headquarters, the division's staff immediately set to work on downsizing the division's CPs. The staff would be small, with no stovepipe experts in any field. Aggressive Marine Air Ground Task Force, or MAGTAF, Officers manned every post. Everyone filled sandbags in his outfit with the expression most heard around the new CP. Speed is the decision making and the command and control were we enabled by release from cumbersome bureaucratics. The intent was to command and control the division's swift movement with closely integrated air and logistics support as if it were a much smaller units. The members of the staff were to think more like a brigade than a division. Some individuals and strong staff teams were critical enablers and now the division's organizations for combat underwent some changes as well. The CG saw habitual relationships they conduct for speed on the battlefield and reorganized the division into regimental combat teams or RCTs, with which it would fight. In combat, several 2nd and 4th Marine Division units would join the Blue Diamond team and were planned into the RCT organization. RCT 1, Inchon was commanded by Colonel Joe Dowdy, who was recently served as the MEF's future plan officer. In addition to 1st Marines, RCT-1 included 2nd LAR Major Elements of the 4th AA Battalion and 2nd Battalion 23rd Marines, a superb 4th Marine Division Battalion. Colonel Joe Dunford commanded RCT-5, Grizzly, consisting of 5th Marines, 1st LAR Battalion and 2nd Tank Battalion. RCT-7, Ripper, was commanded by Colonel Steve Hummer and included 1st Tank Battalion and 3rd LAR Battalion. The Cannon Cockers of 11th Marines, commanded by Colonel Mike Marletto, were integrated into the RCTs in habitual direct and general support relationships as the elements of the division's 3rd AA Battalion reinforced by 2nd and 4th AA Battalions, 1st Combat Engineers Battalion, 2nd Combat Engineers Battalion, and 1st reconnaissance battalion thanks to the foresight and aggressive initiative of the first force service support group or ffsg commander brigadier general edward usher the fssg provided its own task organizational representation with assigned logistics units providing direct support down to the regimental level two weeks after the initial orientation the commanding general gathered his four regimental commanders principal staff and separate battalion commanders in a quiet setting and at the recently built Meth Operations Center, the CG continued to build a command team for the division. The Sweet Lodge meeting had the same solemn contemplation, mutual respect, and shared commitment as a meeting of tribal chieftains joining their tribes for battle. There were clear lines of command, but the assembled chieftains were to gain consensus of the division's vision, each committing himself to the fight ahead. The fraternity of shared risk and common vision grew. The commanding general provided his analysis of the upcoming fight and imaged the commanders through the preparations he expected them to undertake. The assembled commanders were entrusted with the preparation of the division for war with the final commission. Gentlemen, we are now in the province of war. Consider every week your last week of peace and apply your time accordingly. As we move forward in our book, we can see how everything is starting to come together and the commanding general is getting with all of his commanders and putting everything into place as to how he envisions the 1st Marine Division to fight the Iraqi forces. For many, just like me, this is a trip down memory lane, and it allows us to remember exactly what happened and what we went through throughout the whole entire process of us preparing to deploy when we actually left in 2003 to head out to Kuwait, the preparations of the fight that we would have against the Iraqi army. The Quarterdeck is brought to you by Miguel Science Photography. From the beginning of your family to the first birthday and beyond, whether it's a retirement or a Marine Corps ball, Miguel Science Photography is there to make memories that will last a lifetime. Miguel Science Photography is a certified veteran-owned business. Contact them at miguelsciencephotography.com the quarterdeck hero hero highlight i don't believe i heard you correct The President of the United States of America, in the name of Congress, takes pleasure in presenting the Medal of Honor to Corporal Dakota L. Meyer, United States Marine Corps, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty while serving with Marines' Embedded Training Team 28, Regional Corps Advisory Command 37, and Canura, Providence, Afghanistan on September 8, 2009. Corporal Meyer maintained security at a patrol rally point while other members of his team moved on foot with two platoons of Afghan National Army and Border Police into the village of Ganghal for a pre dawn meeting with village elders. Moving into the village, the patrol was ambushed by more than 50 enemy fighters firing rocket propelled grenades, mortars, and machine guns from houses and fortified positions on on the slopes above hearing over the radio that four US team members were cut off Corporal Myers seized the initiative. With a fellow Marine driving, Corporal Meyer took the exposed gunner's position in a gun truck as they drove down the steepy terraced terrain in a daring attempt to disrupt the enemy attack and locate the trapped U.S. team. Disregarding intense enemy fire now concentrated on the lone vehicle, Corporal Meyer killed a number of enemy fighters with his mountain machine gun and his rifle, some at near point-blank range. As he and his driver made three solo trips into the ambush area, during the first two trips he and his driver evacuated two dozen Afghan soldiers, many of whom were wounded. When one machine gun became inoperable, he directed a return to the rally point to switch to another gun truck for a third trip into the ambush area where his accurate fire directly supported the remaining U.S. personnel and Afghan soldiers fighting their way out of the ambush. Despite a shrapnel wound to his arm, Corporal Meyer made two more trips into the ambush area in a third gun truck accompanied by four other Afghan vehicles to recover more wounded Afghan soldiers and search for the missing U.S. team members. Still under heavy enemy fire, he dismounted the vehicle on the fifth trip and moved on foot to locate and recover the bodies of his team members. Corporal Myers' daring initiative and bold fighting spirit throughout the 6-hour battle significantly disrupted the enemy's attack and inspired the members of the combined force to fight on. His unwavering courage and steadfast devotion to his US and Afghan comrades in the face of almost certain death reflected great credit upon himself and held the highest tradition of the Marine Corps and United States Naval Service. The award was presented to him at the White House by President Barack Obama on September 11, 2011. The Quarterdeck Hero hero Highlight I don't believe I heard you correctly. This week on the Quarterdeck, we're going to look back. We're going to look back at one of our own. Not only because he was a Marine, a brother, a devil dog, a Tufa Hunden, but because he truly was a friend. We're going to look back at the life of Staff Sergeant Vincent Bell. Now this Marine was actually one of my PFCs when he first came into the Marine Corps and I was able to work with him and train him and teach him the ways of the artilleryman. So let's start a little bit about talking about him, a little biography on him and where he came from. Staff Sergeant Vincent Bell was, he was born on July 8th of 1983 in Detroit, Michigan, and he enlisted into the Marine Corps on 7 July of 2001. He went to recruit training aboard Paris Island in South Carolina. And upon graduation, he was transferred to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, in order to attend the Marine Corps Training Program or MCT. Once he completed that, Private Bell then transferred over to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, for Field Artillery Cannoneer Crew Course from October 2001 to December 2001, which is where all basic artillerymen are trained. Upon his completion, Private Bell then reported to Sierra Battery 5th Battalion 11th Marines as a cannoneer in January of 2002. I can still remember the day that we picked him up from the JRC building down there in Camp Pendleton, him and a bunch of other new young PFCs coming straight out of Fort Sill. In January of 2003, uh, then Lance Corporal Bell deployed with the Battalion Landing Team BLT-21, 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit, or the MEU, Special Operations in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom 1. During the very first Iraqi freedom he deployed during that time. Upon a return from his deployment, he was a corporal and he held the billets of an assistant section chief, a fire team leader, and in September 2004, Corporal Bell deployed with the 2nd Battalion, 11th Marines in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom 2, TAC-2. 2. Once he returned from that deployment, then Corporal Bell held a billet of a Hauser Section Chief. In July of 2005, Corporal Bell then transferred into the inactive ready reserves. And then on March 3rd, 2006, Sergeant Bell transferred to active duty and was assigned to Sierra Battery, 5th Battalion, 11th Marines. In September of 2006, Sergeant Bell then deployed with BLT 24 to the 15th MEU again in support of Iraqi Freedom 5 TAC 7. Once he returned from that deployment, then Sergeant Bell underwent new equipment training for the M142 High Mars launcher and served as a launcher chief. In July of 2008, Sergeant Bell again deployed with Battery, 5th Battalion, 11th Marines in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom Resolution. Upon his return from this deployment, Sergeant Bell then was reassigned to headquarters battery 11th Marine Regiment to serve as an artillery training school instructor, where he provided advanced training to the section chiefs of 11th Marine Regiment. And in February 2011, Staff Sergeant Bell was promoted to his current rank and reported to Gulf Battery 2nd Battalion 11th Marines, where he served as a howitzer or section chief. On October 31st of 2011, he deployed in support of Operation Enduring Freedom 11TAC-2. As a platoon sergeant for Golf Battery 1st Platoon, while conducting daily combat operations through the Kajaki District, Elman, Providence, in Afghanistan, his life tragically ended on November 30th of 2011. Staff Sergeant Bell is survived by his father, James, his mother, Pamela, and his sisters, London and Andrea, and he had the personal decorations of his Purple Heart, the Navy Marine Corps Combination Medal, Combat V, the Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal, one gold star, and the Combat Action Ribbon with one gold star. Even now, I can still remember the day that I received a phone call when I was down there in um, Camp June North Carolina, when I was still the Battery Gunner Sergeant for Bravo Battery 110. We had just recently returned from a deployment from the same exact same location in the Kajaki District of Hellman Providence, where Staff Sergeant Bell was now deployed to. I had just spoken to him a week prior to the IED explosion that eventually did take his life. We talked for about an hour over Skype about how things were going there, how I kept telling him to make sure he stayed safe, to look at the, the plans that we had left there for them when we left to make sure that uh, you know he was taking care of his Marines. And that was one thing about him. He always put his Marines first. It was always about his Marines. It was never about what is good for me or anything like that. And a lot of those things that I instilled in him when he was a young, young PSC, hopefully did carry over. They did carry over and did allow him to actually use that to be able to train his Marines. And for that, Staff Sergeant Bell, I will always be grateful. It was an honor, a pleasure to serve with you, to be able to share a bit of the knowledge that I had with you. And God bless you. Semper Fidelis, my brother. And we'll see each other again. I want to take this opportunity and thank everybody for joining. Those of you coming back. Welcome back, those of you that are new to our podcast. I hope you enjoy and you subscribe and keep coming back. Just a quick reminder that not only are we streaming on Podbean, but now the podcast is also being available on Apple, Spotify, Google, and all other podcasting services that are out there so you'll be able to actually listen to us. Join us next time as we continue to move forward in the reading of our book with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003. No greater friend, no worse enemy, as we start progressing to the division's preparation to actually deploy into Kuwait in the preparations to head into Iraq. Until next time, this is Miguel, the Gunny Signs. You are dismissed. Get off the blast! I I do solemnly swear. That I will support the government. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic.